This week, we're sharing with you excerpts from a course video about mindful feedback and the way that power and privilege shows up even when we aren't thinking about it. Consider this a sneak peek of our brand new offering, Racial Justice Launchpad. This is Jews Talk Racial Justice with April and Tracy, a weekly show hosted by April Baskin and Tracy Guy Decker. In a complex world, change takes courage. Wholehearted relationships can keep us accountable. Okay, welcome back for part two of Shared Agreements. We are very excited to share some solid thought leadership around mindful and relational feedback that I think will be helpful for your leadership in general and will also support all of us in making the most of this experience together throughout Racial Justice Launchpad. The realm of giving feedback particularly critical feedback, like every other facet of our lives, is a place where we want to strive to be accountable and in alignment with racial justice and anti-racism principles. And I find often today, this is a realm where particularly for white folks, but also folks with other non-target or uh, majority or oppressor group identities also can be more thoughtful about this. In short, the idea here is that feedback is an opportunity to practice mindfulness and to deepen relationship with folks. And there are some predominant beliefs and patterns that aren't helpful and that actually can be really damaging to relationships. And so we want to offer alternatives and suggestions uh, and framings to support you in either further bolstering your already existing great skills in this area, or to give you a range of tools to help you up-level and shift from less giving less effective feedback to more effective feedback. I think it's really easy to imagine and, and to think that, I'm, I'm talking mainly to white folks now, um, that pursuing racial justice and the concerns of power and privilege are things that show up in the boardroom or on the street or in city hall or at the state house or whatever, you know, wherever those like places of power or protests. And what we're saying in this video and throughout is actually it happens everywhere. Every time you have two people, there is power and privilege. And we often, I'm using a big we, this is um, white folks, Jews, Americans in general, we often provide feedback because we want to be helpful. That's what we think we're doing. But we're not examining the power and the privilege of that helpfulness. And so this is an invitation. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. But that I want to sort of place that in your mind that this is an invitation to actually get curious about how the things that you're going to be learning in this program play out everywhere, including places you weren't thinking about. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the place where I often like to start with this is to provide some historical context that one of the underlying beliefs that I see playing out that I think heavily informs at times the way people give feedback is this belief that, quote unquote, the customer is always right, right? So I want to unpack this a little bit and start and start from that place uh, because I think both of the customers always right. And even if you're, you don't have that exact mindset, I think there's a, a similar dynamic, perhaps inspired by that belief of if I have feedback, there's a bit of a dynamic around self-righteousness 
of because I have a thought and it is in the form of feedback, and often this isn't conscious, but it translates as that means I get to say it however I feel comfortable and justified to say it. I can have whatever perspective I want and I can say it in a way that is harsher than I would speak to a supervisor, than I would speak to an elder, than I would speak to somebody I respect and love. Tracy, did you want to add something here? I, I wanted to use the word entitlement. I think that is carried with what you were just describing. I have this thought and because I'm the customer, I'm entitled to share it and demand it. Yeah. Demand, right. It can come out as a demand, right. And I think that underneath that part of those behaviors are buttressed or supported by this belief that the customer is always right. So I wanted to unpack that a bit and say that this concept is attributed to a few different um, white men and retailers such as uh, Harry Gordon Selfridge, John Wanamaker and Marshall Field and was developed around 1909. And what I find interesting is that in on the Wikipedia page, I appreciated that in the second paragraph, it even says right here. However, it was pointed out as early as 1914 that this view ignores that customers can be dishonest, have unrealistic expectations, and or try to misuse a product in ways that void the guarantee. And here's a quick little mini lesson I want to do about that. What was happening in 1909? Jim Crow was happening in 1909. Not only in 1909, but through, throughout the decades and even today, studies show that when a customer is a person of color, particularly black, but not exclusively, the customer is always right principle doesn't really apply. So one of the sayings that I've been starting to say is this concept of the customer is always right came about when the customers the who customer. were considered respected and, uh, and worthy of being right, were always white, right? Right. So there's inherently a racist history and dynamic that was playing out at that time. Um, and also, I just want to identify too, that in how it's played out, as we were referencing earlier, there's different classist and oppressive dynamics about what people deem is, is acceptable behavior or treatment of different people associated with different classes and strata of society. And that there's a dynamic to me that's also playing out in this belief that it's acceptable. Again, I don't think most people consciously think, think this, although some do, that it's acceptable to treat a working class person poorly in a way that we would never treat people who we respect. So I also want to name that. The other thing that I want to name here is that this concept, to me, what is behind this concept? And what I posit is that what's the mo like what's the purpose of this? What purpose does it serve? And the purpose of the customer is always right in the context of retail was profit. The desired outcome was for the companies to make profit and to please the customer, potentially at the expense of working class folks who are working in that store to make a profit. What I want to add um, is when I think about unexamined feedback that I, that I have given in the past and what I see the pattern, um, it often takes the form of you're doing it wrong because it's not the way I would do it. Right. Ooh, I, in good. my head, I can hear family members saying, look at this sandwich at my house. We don't, whatever, you know, put mayonnaise on both sides, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I actually can hear that look in my memory. Of this of, toilet paper. Look at how this dishwasher is loaded. <laughs> exactly. You're doing it wrong because it's not the way I would do it. 
I have an argument regularly with my partner where I'll be doing something. He says, when I fold the clothes, I do it this way as if I should then change the way I fold the clothes to which I say, that's cool. I'm doing it my way. Right. Um, because of the customer is always right. And the entitlement that we, that I named and that April has been describing, you're doing it wrong. This, because it's not the way I would do it follows with an expectation that the person you're talking to will change the way they do it to the way you do it. And I think it's when I, when I lay it out that plainly, I hope it's easy. I hope it's easy to see that that is not a recipe, right? That is, that pattern is not a recipe for real relationship nor change, nor intercultural competence. And it's Um, a clear descendant of servitude and enslavement of whatever I want should go. And you, another human, dehumanized person, are going to do whatever I need because I have money. So Sometimes an argument or a privileged identity. So to bring the Jewish framing into it, I think it's this clearly is um, resonant with what Martin Buber taught us about the difference between I, it, and I, thou. So when I say to you, I don't like the way you're doing that, you need to change it to the way I do it. I'm treating you as an it. And if I can reorient to an I, thou, so that you are a fully, fully human other, um, and not a dehumanized other, Mm -hmm. then it becomes clearer how the results that April just described that she wanted, that we're in this together is easier to hold and to pursue when I treat this as an I-thou relationship, whatever the feedback or the service or the whatever. And I find if I'm able to do that, often whatever that change was that I was looking for, it's not needed. And, you know, if it is still needed, then I start to get at what piece of it is needed because I can't do what I want to do and what piece of it is just my preference and I can let go. One of the recommendations we have around a best practice is to always endeavor to keep in mind power and privilege and equity. What are the different histories and resourcing or lack thereof involved in in the background or not so much background in the foreground for, for each of us in this exchange? So April and I took a course, a masterclass together in productivity um, within the past year. And when we first got started, I got to admit, I wasn't sold. Like this April was super excited. And so I was doing it with her, but I was not sold on, on the coach. Um, love you, Tracy. I, <laughs> I love you really too. wasn't, but she was I down really for wasn't. the <laughs> But, you know, April wanted to do it. And so, you know, okay. Um, and I just, I just wasn't convinced that this guy, I, to be honest, I was not convinced that this man had anything to teach me. That's where I was. And when I logged into his course portal, um, and it was a lot of videos, like a lot, a lot. (laughs) And, um, I'm a reader. I like to read. And so I often will turn on subtitles or sometimes I'll just read the transcript and not actually watch the video or read it while I watch, you know, somehow I like to actually read the words. There were no, there were no subtitles and there were no transcripts and friends. I got real indignant. (laughs) This guy doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't even have subtitles. Like I've got these dozens of videos and I can't learn like this. And I started, I, one of his team members reached out to me to make sure I had everything that I needed. And I was like, actually, I don't. Where are the transcripts? And this poor fellow was like, 
Um, I'm not sure if we have them. Let me check. And I just kept, <laughs> you know how it goes, folks. Like I fed my entitled righteous indignation that I was so much better than this guy that he didn't know what he was doing. And if he did it my way, it would be better. But, you know, April was into it. So I reluctantly kept watching the videos and I'm glad that I did because one of the very first videos I watched was a video about radical responsibility that basically said, you don't have control over anybody but you. So what experience do you want to have? And I really heard it. And I looked at the videos and I was like, I can do this. I, I don't have any hearing impairment. I don't need subtitles because I cannot hear the audio. I just like to read better. And when I really dug into it, like, am I helping this guy? Am I helping myself by sitting up on this high horse about how I would do it differently? And he ought, like ought with a capital O to have, uh, you know, transcripts and, and closed captioning, who am I helping? And the answer is actually no one. And once I really saw that, I was like, okay, I got I got to watch these videos. And you know what? That guy had a lot to teach me. I learned so, so much. And I'm so grateful that we did that course. It really transformed the way that I work. It was it was really amazing. And I never would have gotten there if I had allowed myself to stay in that self-righteous indignation where he was an it to me and not a thou. And actually, I really, I mean, I've not closely, but I've stayed in touch with him. We're connected on Facebook and in other ways. And I've offered to help him, you know, maybe copy edit a book he's working on. Like I'm now in relationship with this person because I decided to take radical responsibility in that moment. So I'm, I'm sharing this story. I hope that it sounds resonant, um, you know, in that sort of indignation. I know that is not the first moment I have been on that high horse. Uh, and um, so maybe it sounds familiar to you, but thank you for sharing. I just wanted to like share that specific experience because I think that it was an important lesson for me um, in a lot of ways in thinking about feedback and helpfulness. Um you know, I, I, I did tell him that if someone comes through who needs closed captioning because they do have a, a, some sort of hearing loss or disability, then you might need to think about that. But that's for, that's for him to work on. That's actually not mine to hold. Thank you for letting me share that, April. I hope that resonates with you, friends. Yeah. And I think this is bringing up a few different things. There's a couple different pieces here that I also want to lift up around that I find that more effective feedback is typically around people taking ownership of their own experience and also giving space for other people to take ownership of their experience, right? So a variation of Tracy's stories was if she started and saying, well, this isn't good for this group of people. There's a way that there's also a saviorism dynamic there yeah. and also a saviorism dynamic in general or like a subtle, often not conscious superiority dynamic around what's helpful. And one thing yeah. I do want to say both specifically for this program, but also in general, if you're working with other folks of color um, or anyone who's a part of a marginalized identity, is that at times there can be a pattern that shows up around thinking that one is being helpful. But I have to tell you as a person of color and specifically in this program and having led a number of programs, that the feedback I receive from folks when it's in the helpful category are things that I have already thought about 
well about. And I've already intentionally designed this program in particular ways. And people, when they think they're being helpful, um, aren't. I think if I didn't, if I weren't more confident, confident, one, I, I think it could even at times be classified as um, a bit insulting. I don't read it as that because I read it as someone else doing the best with the knowledge and understanding they have. And they don't realize that my knowledge is a lot more advanced than that. And I've already accounted for four times, whatever they're, they're thinking of. Um, but there's, uh, Tracy, I think you speak to this well, but there's a way that, um, uh, people with certain, uh, privileged identities around certain things. And as we will get into later in the program, every human just about on this planet holds both privileged and oppressed identities. So, um, when we say that, um, uh, we say that open-heartedly and holistically, but in certain dynamics, some of our identities come through more than others. And that's more of a privileged pattern as opposed to at times people who have less privileged identities, who have a very different mindset of, I may give feedback, but also I'm going to either trust and, or just go through this and move through this and listen and learn and fully experience it and have some humility around it before I offer feedback. I think that the, the being helpful to, um, or the desire to be helpful also is, is a cultural pattern, um, for Jews, for Ashkenazi Jews in particular, in part because of our long history of being sort of the middle agent role in society or being helpful helped us survive, um, being helpful to those in power. Um, and so it is a pattern that we have inherited and one that we can examine. That I think is worth examining. And I think at times is worth letting, putting down. I think that obviously in healthy, useful ways, being helpful can be useful. But what I would say is that I just had, I had a thought that I think might be helpful for some and might be a little triggering or, or annoying for others, but I think it still is somewhat useful, is that I think the dynamic we're talking about here across lines of difference or just in the context of client versus service provider um, is is sort of similar to a dynamic around mansplaining, where a person is thinking they're being helpful, but the other person, but it's assuming a lack of knowledge and agency and insight on the part of the other person. Um, and again, so not to say that great, help is right? no, That's a great you know, analogy. So, that's a great analogy. And so that at it, times is what I've, um, what I and other folks, and also even in supervision, supervisory scenarios, which is where curiosity can be so helpful to ask more questions and allow the person to share what they're knowing and thinking. Another component of it is what I named earlier about where if my helpfulness is to help someone who is different than me be more like me, that's not actually helpful. The last piece that I wanted to mention is just to share an example of what a great form of feedback looks like. A participant in one of our programs earlier this year noted that we scheduled a class, a live class on a day of um, honoring and celebrating and remembrance for a targeted identity that they have. And they didn't have to be, honestly, like actually, but they wrote a very thoughtful note to us as a person who has this identity and said, there's a number of different people who have this identity in our program. And um, I'm just wondering what some of the options might be. And 
um, I'm messaging you now. The other thing is that they saw this in advance and they messaged us a few weeks ahead of time. Um, no need to get back immediately. I know that you're a startup organization and you're juggling a lot right now, but if and when you have the chance you can get back to me, I would appreciate it. They also said, if it's not possible, I will watch the recording. Right. So they, they offered a solution. Yes. That, yeah. that didn't right. involve, that did not involve Joyce Justice making changes. Right. Yeah, they did. And, um, we wrote back and, uh, thanked them for bringing this to our attention. It was an issue that both directly affected them and also did sincerely affect a number of people in the program in a way that would put them in a position where they would have to choose between acknowledging this targeted identity and or, and some of them might've had no problem with it, but it was something, this was in the realm of very effective feedback. This was an, a, something that we'd missed unintentionally and that we were very appreciative of them bringing it to our attention. And it was just also icing on the cake and um, spoke so well of this person and their leadership that they were so kind because they didn't have to be. If they'd sent us a slightly perturbed email I would have frankly, I would have frankly understood it. And I still apologized either way. Um, but they'd clearly been doing their own work, likely honestly in their life more broadly. Uh, and also around this to process it and to check in and to realize what was most important to them and what were solutions they had. And we also uh, went out of our way and uh, rescheduled, added an additional class, sent out a public acknowledgement of this, asked them for their permission if they were fine being acknowledged. Um, but what I want to identify here is that the way they approached it enabled us to feel comfortable to partner with them around weighing in on how we do it. When feedback comes in this format, I mean, I guess some people don't like it, but our team especially, um, we really, we want to continue to be better and grow and have our programs be as accessible as they can be. And so again, it just further reiterates my point about feedback at, at its best is an opportunity for growth and deeper relationship um, and collective advancement. Tracy? Yeah. In a nutshell, the what was so wonderful about that feedback was that clearly we were all on the same team and it was not yeah. adversarial in a nutshell. I mean, and that's not where I was when I was complaining about this productivity coach. It, it was very much me versus him uh, when I was giving feedback about the lack of, lack of um, transcripts. Um, and that's, to me, that is the, the core. There are other details, but that's the core of the difference is that that feedback was given in such a way that we were in this together as opposed to, I think you screwed up. Right. And the other piece that I want to say here, which I, I'm thinking a number of you, you might be thinking about at this moment. I don't want what we're saying to be conflated as tone policing. What we're talking about here right. is the most effective form of communication, particularly this person who had this identity. It's an identity that is deeply targeted by violence and oppression and suppression in a variety of different forms. And so if they had come to me, if they'd come to us angry, it would have been a little harder for us to process, but I would have complete, you know, like it would have taken a little bit more time, but I would not have made them wrong from a place of power, when people communicate feedback less effectively, I both may have a critique of different oppressive patterns they're playing out. And usually there's some sort of restorative justice or trauma-informed analysis that I bring to that. 
that doesn't shame or blame them that may say, wow, that was very hurtful. And I experienced that as racism or I experienced that as over the top emotion, but that likely means that this is reminding them of something important in their life. I look forward to you having a chance to digest this and for us playing out these insights and starting to learn more about them and lean into them as we progress in the program. This isn't a final note, but an opening to this conversation. And it's all open for additional questions and engagement. And we get to engage and learn about all of this together. Thanks for tuning in. Our show's theme music was composed by Elliot Hammer. You can find this track and other beats on Instagram at Elliot Hammer. If this episode resonated with you, please share it and subscribe. To join the conversation, visit JewsTalkRacialJustice.com, where you can send us a question or suggestion, access our show notes, and learn more about our team. Take care until next time and stay humble and keep going.